National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, September 20th in 2023, and you've joined us for National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Uh, we get together here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, from across the nation, and sometimes from other parts of the world to explore American national security interests. We've got a fascinating show for you today. We're going to take a look at the intersection of cyber operations and a somewhat new phenomenon called hacktivism, and we'll apply the knowledge we learn about those two subjects to a real-world ongoing experiment, Ukraine. With us to consider this topic is uh, Dr. Vasilios Karajanopoulos. Uh, Vasilios Karajanopoulos graduated from Athens Law School and completed a master's degree in information technology law and a doctorate in law at the University of Strathclyde Law School. Since 2014, he's been working on the school of, at the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at the University of Portsmouth in the United Kingdom, where he is now an associate professor in cybercrime and cybersecurity and co-director of the newly launched Research Center for Cybercrime and Economic Crime. Vasilios led the design and launch of a Bachelor of Science in Criminology and Cybercrime in 2018, and he's the director of the Cybercrime Awareness Clinic, an innovation hub that has secured funding from various national and international bodies to work on cybercrime awareness projects with vulnerable groups and organizations. Uh, Vasilios has published extensively in national and international journals and magazines in relation to cybercrime and information technology law and politics, as well as internet regulations, cyber awareness, and research ethics, and he participates regularly in both national and international academic and practitioner conferences. He's also won the National Cyber Award for Cyber Awareness in 2020 and a high commendation in 2022 for his clinic work and was named Privacy Leader in Academia at the 2022 Picasso Awards. Dr. Vasilios Karajanopoulos, welcome to National Security This Week. Glad to be here. And where are you sitting this morning, or I guess I should say this afternoon for you? <laughs> yes, it is afternoon. I am in Brighton in the UK. Um, I work for the University of Portsmouth, obviously, but I'm, I'm based in, in Brighton, which is um, a city an hour an hour away from from Portsmouth. Okay, well, we're we're very very excited to have you on the show today. Uh, the wonders of modern technology make you seem like you're right in front of me uh, here on Zoom. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to our discussion. Uh, so you you mentioned uh, before we got on the air to go ahead and call you Voss. Uh, let's begin our our, yeah. uh, our. That'll be a little easier for me to say as a, as a, a, a somebody who struggles with <laughs> English in general. Uh, but let's begin our cyber-centric discussions today by explaining some of the terms we'll use throughout our discussion. I think sure. it'll be instructive for all of us, especially for me. But let's start with this first term, cyber awareness. You spend time focusing on this topic when you advocate for cybersecurity. What exactly is cyber awareness in this world? Yeah, thank you. Um, so as you mentioned, I run a cybercrime awareness clinic. Um, and we tend to mention cyber awareness as a, a short term, let's say, for cyber crime awareness or cyber security awareness in general. Um, cyber awareness is essentially the, the effort to educate the public, to educate citizens, organizations, um, and, and even you know, governments um, and, and other stakeholders uh, in relation to the risks and threats uh, around the Internet, um, criminal threats, security threats, 
but also to educate about proper behavior, etiquette online, uh, critical thinking and media literacy, um, and, and so on. So it's a, it's a very wide term that encompasses, um, let's say, all the necessary kind of awareness and education that we need in cyberspace to be functional cyber citizens. And because you study this topic, I have to think that, I mean, your awareness of how much, I guess, hacking or penetration attempts on networks all around the world, it's 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 happening constantly, millions of times a day, right? Yes, indeed. Um, so obviously, uh, with the advent of time and how Internet has become so popular, and especially after COVID-19 and the lockdowns, we've become even more reliant on, on technology and, and Internet connections and networks um, and information more generally. Um, so uh, we are gradually seeing more and more attacks on, on information networks. So we need we really need to be practicing cyber awareness uh, all the time when we're on online, right? Definitely, that's this is what we're preaching with the Cybercrime Awareness Clinic, and I'm also um, co-director of the Center for Cybercrime and Economic Crime at the university here. So uh, we are currently involved in in various different projects, and what we're trying to communicate and identify as well is various different new ways, new technologies that we can implement to help people become more aware, but also protect themselves um, and prevent victimization. Let me let me throw a, a few more terms at you so that sure. both me and our, and our listeners are we're all on the same page so we can sort of understand everything you're going to tell us afterwards. Definitely. Cybersecurity. What exactly does that mean in, in your lexicon? Well, I mean, cybersecurity is a very uh, peculiar term because um, it's been, in a way, demonized uh, by the public in the se- in the sense that <laughs> I'll explain what I mean. Um, so we've done a lot of work with uh, the general public uh, and various different age groups, uh, young people, older adults, for example, and even, you know, small businesses. And, and what we're seeing in general is that cybersecurity is seen as something that's very technical, uh, very jargonistic, even as a, as a term in itself. Um, and, and people shy away from it. But in reality, cybersecurity is all the various different efforts that we make uh, to, to make ourselves more secure online. Um, it's nothing more complicated than that. Then, you know, you've got various different dimensions to cybersecurity. Obviously, there's a technical dimension in the sense that we would, um, let's say, implement an antivirus software to protect us from, from malware. Um, or we would have firewalls, or we would uh, update our software and download patches for our various different programs uh, that we're running on our computers. Um, these are all the technical elements. But there's also a lot of uh, cybersecurity that is not technical and relates to um, how we critically analyze messages that we might be receiving. Uh, for example, or whether we have established processes for dealing with uh, any any compromises if we're talking about a business environment. Okay, for the, <clears throat> for the next few terms, maybe uh, let's just go briefly because I think we'll okay, it'll sure. come, it'll become kind of obvious what we're talking about as we go through the rest. But I think we need yeah. a baseline. Cybercrime. Well, cybercrime is any kind of crime that happens online. Uh, really, um, we've got different categorizations. Um, cyber-dependent ones, for example, are cyber crimes like hacking and viruses and crimes that did not exist before the internet, let's say. Um, and and cyber-enabled ones are crimes like fraud, but happening 
online as well. And we've got you know very wide variety in both these categorizations. Okay. Uh, so in my in my world, in the intelligence world, uh, this next term mm -hmm. has some controversy to it because mm -hmm. no, nobody's, I think, really sure what it actually means. Cyber terrorism. What exactly is that in your mind? Well, you, you did mention it. Um, it's a very, very complicated term. Um, even defining terrorism is very complicated um, in general. So cyber terrorism is, is even more complicated. I guess it's um, attacks um, that would be targeting usually um, important networks, critical infrastructures, for example, uh, with the aim of, of causing fear in the public and coercing governments into accepting demands by political groups, for example, or uh, you know spreading fear and promoting uh, radical ideologies okay. uh, by distracting uh, critical infrastructures. Uh, this next this next term is uh, is important because it's go it goes on all the time. It's become sort of almost a mm -hmm. main uh, element of the world of intelligence. But cyber espionage. Yeah. Um, again, as we say, these, these terms are very contested um, <laughs> in terms of the definitions. Uh, <laughs> you're starting me with uh, the complicated ones here. Uh, but uh, cyber espionage is essentially all this underlying kind of um, cyber warfare that is not necessarily declared uh, war between states, but um, it's all the stolen information um, and all the hacking that happens in the background between governments or corporations, for example, uh, where one uh, attacker is trying to get confidential information, um, new intellectual property and other um, associated uh, important information from the other parties in order to gain a competitive advantage, for example, or um, advantage in you know, a, a war, let's say. Uh, so we will be talking about this in, in great depth, but uh, there's both offensive and defensive cyber warfare. You sort of mentioned a little bit as a, as a component part of advanced uh, cyber espionage, per se. Uh, but how about yeah. the term hacktivism? Let's define that before we move on. Well, yes, um, hacktivism is a term that has been used quite broadly uh, to relate to political hacking. Um, hacking with political motivations, for example. Um, and uh, we are going to analyze it a lot more. So that's probably the simplest uh, term that, that we can use for the start. And then obviously we'll, we're going to go a little bit deeper. All right. So we've got our baseline on what some of these terms mean. Uh, hopefully uh, I'll remember them as we go through. Uh, but let's, let's start our discussion today. Let's use Ukraine as our case study uh, to see how some of these cyber-centric uh, terms, these capabilities have been applied and I think we can do this best by considering the phases we've seen so far in the Russian invasion of Ukraine. What was the situation in Ukraine ahead of the Russian invasion? In other words, was Ukraine under a sort of a constant probing operation on the cyber world uh, from Moscow or others? I know it's it's difficult to uh, to ac accurately attribute who's doing things in the cyber arena. That's one of the, the benefits of doing cyber operations. But were the Russians or their proxies seeking to gain some sort of a technological advantage over U Ukraine by using cyber espionage and even cyber warfare, undeclared, uh, to undermine Ukrainian excuse me, situational awareness or Ukrainian command control or other aspects, maybe critical infrastructure. Uh, what were you seeing before the Russians invaded Ukraine? Yeah, thanks, John. Um, I think what you mentioned is, is very critical. Attribution is something that is very hard to be 100% 
certain off. Um, and also, you mentioned government and proxies. So this is something we are seeing a lot um, in these situations where there's a lot of hacking um, attacks, a lot of compromises, a lot of cyber attacks um, happening between states. But it's very rare that a government will come out openly and, and claim responsibility for an attack. And this is why we say cyber espionage between states and cyber warfare can sometimes overlap because we have what you mentioned, you know, non-declared cyber warfare, which um, essentially manifests as uh, cyber espionage. Um, in the case of Ukraine, we do know, uh, obviously, there had been uh, conflicts in, in previous years as well uh, in the Crimea area um, as well. Um, so we do know that there has been a constant kind of conflict between um, hackers from Russia um, attacking Ukrainian targets. Um, there was a particular piece of malware called NotPetya. Uh, that was meant to was designed to target Ukrainian uh, government uh, networks using a particular piece of software, and then obviously it spilled over um, because we're all interconnected. So it's very hard to actually say, "Oh, I'm just going to target uh, networks within a particular uh, national space where we're all interconnected." And where the, the compromises happen through software that uh, not just one country will be using in their uh, services, but other countries might be using as well. Um, and we saw billions of, of dollars uh, being being lost uh, by systems that were not operating because of NotPetya, for example. So um, we definitely have seen a, a constant kind of testing of the defenses between um, the, the two states. Um, the, there have been attacks on the power grid as well against, uh, against Ukraine, which uh, sort of left... Um, certain parts of the country without electricity for a few hours. Um, but it's very, very hard to actually attribute those attacks to the, the government. So um, there is a reputation that the secret services, the GRU, um, are behind certain attacks or uh, the, that these are state-sponsored hacking groups uh, or state-supported or state-funded, uh, but uh, they could also be nationalistic hacking groups that are doing it in order to support their country, for example. And it's very hard to actually identify this. Okay. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Vasilios Karagianopoulos, and we're discussing cyber operations, the concept of hacktivism, and the role of cyber in the war in Ukraine. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. All right, so Russia invaded uh, Ukraine in late February of 2022. Uh, what changed in the cyber arena once the ground offensive, the major ground offensive, uh, began and Russian forces punched across the border into Ukraine? Uh, did experts like you see significant operational expansion of cyber warfare uh, by Russia or proxies uh, that were targeting Ukraine during that time frame? Or, or were there, was it a dramatic expanse in both defensive and offensive cyber operations by Ukraine to defend itself from, from being a cyber attacked? I mean, what were you seeing in those, in those opening months of the, of the conflict? Well, we saw some very interesting uh, phenomena. First of all, um, we did see an attack on the Viasat satellite uh, network uh, just before the invasion. 
Um, and that was meant to create some communication gap in the Ukrainian forces so they couldn't really monitor the movements of, of Russian troops as they were invading as well. Uh, but we also saw that this cyber attack impacted on various other networks across the globe. Um, plenty of these countries uh, that had networks affected were NATO countries. So um, it was a very complicated initial attack that sort of coincided with the invasion. Um, even before uh, the uh, the start of the invasion, it was pretty clear that Russia was preparing something um, because troops were gathering around the border, as we know. Um, so that um, resulted in cyber attacks happening on both sides much more intensively. Um, and we we can actually say that uh, because there was this concern that Russia would invade um, in the weeks just before the invasion attack, we did see a lot of hacker and hacktivist groups um, actually uh, rallying to support Ukraine and then declaring war against Russia, um, cyber war, yeah, in the sense of, you know, activist cyber war as hacktivists usually do. Um, and uh, attacking various different Russian uh, websites, government websites, corporate websites, um, stealing information and releasing that information online or sharing it with uh, the Ukrainian uh, government. Um, we did see something that I feel is a very unique uh, thing as well. Uh, we saw uh, a, a government minister from Ukraine, Fedorov, actually um, coming out and uh, calling hackers, not just from Ukraine, but from around the globe, to rally and become part of its IT army. Um, and uh, we do know that most countries nowadays would have their own kind of cyber operations branch and maybe even hiring hacker groups to help them out um, or having them as a reserve force um, in, the, in the cyber forces. Uh, but it was the first time that we actually saw a government official openly inviting uh, hackers to, to join the Ukrainian IT army uh, and supplement the, the efforts of the Ukrainian government to defend itself. So is this sort of where this term uh, hacktivism really kind of comes into being, is that you're, you're looking for activists with hacking skills uh, to join this capability to defend uh, uh, the the democracy that was Ukraine from from this invasion by a foreign power. Well, hacktivism is a very old term, actually. Um, so we are we have seen a lot of iterations of hacktivism across the years. So, um, if I may do a very brief kind of historic overview, a absolutely, of, of hacktivism. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, thanks, John. Uh, hacktivism started in the nineties. Even. And, and we do know the reliance on information networks at the time and the Internet speeds that we had and even, you know, the uh, the spaces that we were converting to in the 90s, in the late 90s, had nothing to do with what we are doing today online. Um, but the reality is that hacktivism started uh, in the in the late 90s by groups that were a, a mix of uh, political activists, but also network artists. Um, or computer scientists um, that were very politically sensitized, for example. 
um, or hackers that were very, very politically uh, sensitized. And uh, they formed various different groups like the Electronic Disturbance Theater, for example, uh, or Hacktivismo, um, or the Electro Hippies. And they organized various different kinds of protests uh, that we we um, tend to characterize as virtual graffiti, where you deface a web page in order to communicate a political message. And we've seen a lot of that with Ukraine as well. A lot of uh, Ukrainian hackers, for example, uh, or Russian hackers would be defacing, changing how a website looks and putting in a political message, for example, um, in support of whatever side they are on anyway. Um and uh, then we had the advent of Anonymous in the Zeros. Yeah, um, we had a brief kind of trough uh, of activity in the early Zeros. But then around the mid Zeros, we started seeing um, Anonymous happening as a much more fluid kind of collective. The groups that we had initially uh, were much smaller uh, and they were very open about their identities, pretty much. Um, at least many of them were, were very known to the public. Um, and uh, with Anonymous, we are seeing a shift. Um, these offences, um, denial of service attacks or uh, virtual C-teams, as hacktivists call them, uh, become criminalised. Defacements are obviously uh, hacking attacks as well that are criminalized um, and law enforcement agencies and, and governments are much more interested in uh, prosecuting these these kinds of attacks. Uh, so we are seeing a shift from the openness uh, of identity that we had in previous years. And we have seen a lot of activity uh, from Anonymous happening a decade ago, for example, or 15 years ago. Uh, in relation to various different issues, in relation to WikiLeaks, for example, um, in relation to um, Donald Trump, uh, in relation to ISIS uh, and exposing, you know, affiliated terrorists, um, even pedophile rings have been exposed by hacktivists. So we are we have seen a lot of activity in previous years, and and now with the war in in Ukraine, we are seeing the introduction of, of hacktivists into this new kind of arena where we actually have a conflict between um, two different nations. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up uh, Anonymous. I, I think that group is one that most people have probably heard of in the news because of the fairly high-profile things that they have done in the past, uh, you know, leaking information that they've been able to get access to through their hacking efforts. Uh, clearly, uh uh, sort of a, 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 a political objective on the part of that particular group. Never really, you know, quote-unquote, identified as, you know, anonymous. Uh, we don't mm -hmm. really know who's involved, a loose grouping of people with a unique set of skills, uh, probably ebbs and flows as far as how many people are involved. Uh, I do know that in the early days of uh, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, the people who, you know, are part of anonymous— uh, the whole point is we don't know who they are, but they jumped in mm -hmm. to try and help the uh, Ukrainian people uh, in defending their nation. So where are we at today? I mean, we're 19 months into this conflict. Uh, what 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 kind of transition have have you seen? You and your colleagues seen over the last uh, you know 18 19 months uh, with regards to cyber operations on both sides of this conflict, whether they be state run or or proxies or hacktivists uh, jumping in. I can't imagine the the Ukrainian IT army 
uh, is ac- is actually able to go in and say, hey, anonymous, identify who you individuals are so we can guide your efforts. Uh, they're still going to be anonymous. They're still going to do what they want to do, but they're going to do it in support potentially of, of, of Ukraine and Ukraine's defense. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Uh, we, we are seeing, first of all, um, a lot of overlap between people that might um, have joined the IT army, but also belong to other hacker groups that might be helping out in one one way or another. Um, on the other hand, because of all this kind of hacking activity uh, in support of Ukraine, um, we have seen that uh, the big hacker groups that exist in, in Russia, and we know Russia has a, a big tradition in terms of uh, big ransomware gangs and and, and hacker, hacker groups, um, have rallied accordingly um, to support uh, Russia in these efforts and counterattack uh, when, for example, Anonymous or other groups are attacking different networks, banking networks, media uh, uh, stations, uh, TV stations, radio stations, and, and so on, um, and a lot of other kind of corporate and, and government networks. We are seeing similar activity uh, on the side of, of Russia. Um, we did not see the major cyber attacks that were anticipated uh, initially. And, and that was uh, that has been a surprise along the way because uh, when, when the war started, there was a concern that um, Russia had a lot of firepower in terms of cyber attacking um, and they would put it to to clear use. Um, And there are various theories, uh, but for me, I guess um, one of the most realistic theories is that a lot of uh, firepower on the side of Ukraine has also rallied together to defend and prevent attacks like that. And we know big corporations, for example, like Microsoft and Amazon um, have offered services alongside uh, governments like the US government, the UK government and other NATO partners. and therefore, uh, we could perhaps have seen more attacks happening from the side of Russia, uh, but they have been moderated because of that concerted effort from uh, the allies. Uh, so we're going to just take a, a brief uh, commercial break to recognize our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. Uh, we will be right back in about uh, 60 seconds with our continuing show on uh, on cyber. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.com. And we're back here on National Security This Week with Dr. Vasilios Karajanopoulos, and we're discussing cyber operations, this concept of uh, hacktivism as it's being applied, uh, and how cyber is being used in the Ukraine war. Uh, So Dr. Karajanopoulos used the term in an article that you co-authored with uh, Professor Athena uh, Karajiani. Is that close? (laughs) Karajiani. Karajiani from the University of Leicester. Uh, you, there's a term in there, not really a term, a, 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 the name of a group in there, cyber partisans. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Let's continue our discussions on the war in Ukraine by considering this issue of the cyber partisans and their operations, principally operating from Belarus. 
Uh, what, what trends are you seeing from ci- this cyberpartisan group? And and to me, it sounds a little bit like some of the hacktivism operations that are going on tend to be a little bit more independent. But this cyberpartisan group, they might be getting guidance from a from a nation state like Belarus or Russia. Our cyber part, the cyberpartisan group, are, they are acting as I understand against Ukraine. Uh, in support of Russia uh, from from outside the theater of operations, uh, so in in Belarus or someplace somewhere in the world, uh, can you describe what who the cyber partisans are and what they're doing? Sure, John. Just to clarify, the yep. cyber partisans are actually supporting Ukraine and not oh, they against, are against. Okay, all right, uh, sorry. My, my. Um, so the cyber partisans formed uh, for very nation based reasons. They are a hacktivist. Uh, a group that is trying to highlight uh, the uh, politically corrupt practices of the Lukashenko regime in Belarus. And we know Belarus and Russia um, and their regimes are very close. We know Lukashenko is very close to Putin, for example. And uh, we have seen efforts to support uh, Russia by um, allowing Russian troops to go through Belarus uh, and uh, and all that. So... Um, in terms of the cyber partisans, the cyber partisans um, have declared that they are more interested in actually uh, focusing on their particular kind of national uh, goal of ousting the Lukashenko regime and, and bringing a more democratic kind of uh, regime to uh, to Belarus. Uh, but because of the very close involvement of the Belarusian uh, regime with the war in uh, Ukraine and, and supporting Russia, uh, they've had to also take uh, part in, or they got involved because of that process anyway. Um, so we did see, for example, the cyber partisans uh, hacking the, the train ticket system in Belarus, um, in order to delay the trains when they found out that Belarusian trains uh, were actually being used to transport Russian troops to the border uh, just before the invasion. Uh, And because of that action, they were branded as terrorists by the regime. Uh, But uh, yeah, it's a small group of uh, hackers and other activists. And they even have a spokesperson. So no one really knows what the other members are or look like. uh, But they do have a spokesperson that actually goes around the world and gives interviews and explains what the cause is. And they collaborate with other activist groups. So it's, it's, I'm glad you mentioned the, the railway network inside Belarus because uh, there was another article that just came out a little while ago uh, talking about a, a hack that disrupted Poland's railway system, which has been vitally important for moving uh, military supplies uh, you know, from, West, from more Western Europe into the, uh, to the Ukrainian border uh, to get these weapon systems uh, into the Ukrainians uh, to fight uh, the Russian invasion. So... And this was a a simple hack. Uh, apparently, they hacked into the radio network that then disrupted the entire Polish network system. So, mm-hmm. the the systems of systems that we have that we that exist today, how I mean, are you seeing in, increased vulnerability uh, to these kinds of technological hacks and and uh, and what they can do to disrupt sort of these systems of systems that control so many aspects of of our life? In this case, we're talking about you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but it's clearly spilling out uh, over to other areas, not only in Europe, but but around the world. The article that you and, and 
your colleague wrote, sort of discussed a lot of other areas around the world where this uh, this hacktivism mm-hmm. uh, is, is taking place. It's something we really need to become far more aware of. Yeah, definitely. Um, as you as you mentioned, uh, we we have seen uh, hacking attacks on on both sides. Um, and on various critical infrastructures like banking systems, you know, communication systems, transport systems. Um, so it is um, our reliance on on these networks is becoming uh, more and more advanced and more complicated as well. And we do know that uh, with uh, the, the wider reliance on information networks, there's more opportunities for cyber criminals, um, cyber terrorists, or you know, um, cyber espionage agents um, to find ways for committing these attacks, for stealing information, for uh, introducing malware to the systems, and so on. So this this term partisan. That goes back to World War II. It's, it's got sort of a famous, uh, uh, I guess, uh, heritage to it. Uh, the people who consider themselves partisans in World War II were operating really independently of government direction in many cases. Uh, as things mm-hmm. became more organized in the resistance to, to, to the Nazis where they held power, uh, it, it, you'd, you'd have sort of the allied governments giving direction to these organizations. So... Cyber partisans as an individual, as a group uh, operating out of Belarus or against Belarus, I should say, uh, that's that might be the first of a wave of new, more organized hacking operations, independent operations that uh, groups or individuals even are carrying out. Are you seeing a trend line along those th- along those lines as cyber becomes more and more embedded in in uh, in the world? Yeah, I would say, you know, um, I think the the cyber partisans would like to think they are operating for Belarus rather than against Belarus. They're operating against, you know, what they think is a corrupt sure. yeah. uh, government in, in Belarus uh, with the aim of improving things according to their views. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I would say, um, because you're mentioning the, the partisan concept more widely, um, I think this is just a, a name they have adopted. But uh, if we want to see it on a more conceptual basis, I would say that uh, we are seeing a lot of uh, activists and hackers uh, becoming part of, of this conflict that is happening in, in the Ukraine and Russia with very active um, kind of roles sometimes, um, especially when we're talking about hackers joining the IT army. And there are talks that um, the IT army is... At the moment, let's say uh, a selection of vigilante hackers, uh, perhaps that want to support Ukraine and they're not really acting as part of an organized military force. Uh, but that might change because there are talks about uh, Ukraine actually adding the IT army as a formal branch of its uh, military operations, military kind of uh, body. So if that happens um, and they are formally introduced into the whole kind of uh, system, then obviously that changes what they are exactly. Um, They could become, for example, combatants um, in terms of international uh, law. Uh, So if that happens, it will be the first time that we have seen it happening in a real conflict. Um, and I think we are seeing a trend that, that is changing the nature of hacktivism, yes. 
So let's let's transition our discussion a little bit away from uh, direct conflict, state to state conflict, and and the kind of things that that happen in support or or against uh, you know nation states during during conflict er- timeframes. One of the really attractive things about cyber operations, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, is that attribution is very difficult yeah. to assign. Uh, that's one of the one of the benefits of cyber. It, it can be very difficult to identify who carried out the cyber operation in the first place, and, and a really good uh, hacking group or individual can probably figure out a way to pin it on somebody else to make the, the make it even more complex to figure out who's actually doing things. Uh, so anonymous is a well-named group because uh, because of their ability to hack and, and hack into things and people don't know who did it. So another area where you have a great deal of expertise is this uh, the cyber criminal arena, cyber crime. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you see any crossover uh, between these kind of uh, you know partisan, anonymous cyber operations on the national defense side of things, the national security side of things, uh, and, and the cyber criminal behavior? I mean, do you see any sort of crossover there? So, for instance, what a what a would a partisan attack in the cyber arena on Russia's banking network, I mean, would that be criminal in nature, or would it be a support of, uh, of the cause to defend Ukraine? Or, or is it both? Is it both? I mean, if you, if you had a, a criminal entity that went in and attacked the Russian banking network and stole a billion rubles out of the system, uh, is that criminal activity or is that uh, in support of defending Ukraine? Or both. I mean, well, how would you frame it as somebody with so, so deep background in law and cyber? Well, that's a, a very, very interesting question because um, we are seeing this happening. We are seeing a lot of overlap. Um, and as I mentioned, there's a lot of hacker groups and ransomware groups that were very active in the cyber criminal arena, introducing ransomware and stealing money or and cryptocurrency. Uh, ransom from various different organizations, um, actually shifting their attention and their efforts um, or repurposing their cyber weapons, let's say, uh, to uh, support uh, Russia in this this kind of uh, conflict. So we definitely have seen these organized crime groups online uh, actually taking a much more political stance and using their cyber criminal activities and maybe even the income gained from these activities in support of, of the Russian cause. Um, having said that, um, I think we have seen cyber criminals uh, doing this in various different occasions. That's not a problem. Uh, the big question here, and, and I'm, I'm glad you highlighted this, is that uh, when you've got a hacker actually hacking another organization across borders, they're still committing a criminal offense, usually in the country they are in, yeah, uh, violating the Computer Misuse Act, for example, in the UK, or the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act in the US. Um, and uh, the question is, should they be prosecuted? Um, so I think uh, there is no interest in actually prosecuting, and that's why they they are not prosecuted. Um, and it's very hard to actually identify what they've done, when they've done it. Um, and obviously, a U.S. prosecutor might not be interested in prosecuting someone who is actually supporting the cause in Ukraine. Um, but in reality, if we want to look at it in a in a black and white kind of uh, legal perspective. They definitely violate. Uh, criminal laws in the countries that they might be in. It, it does raise a, 
some very interesting theoretical questions, uh, certainly some challenging questions in a legal framework, especially on the international side of things, because, I mean, the economy, the global economy is so interwoven today. Uh, and when you overlay state-to-state uh, -state, uh, conflict or, or, or competition, uh, especially when it gets a really aggressive, uh, these kinds of issues that come up make for an interesting theoretical uh, discussion that really has real-world implications. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a global phenomenon at the moment, um, and it's so widespread uh, that we are seeing it is very difficult to actually identify what has happened, first of all, because of the attribution issues. Yeah, we do see a lot of groups, for example, coming out and saying they've done certain hacks. Uh, but one of the questions is, have they actually done them? Um, right. Because then you might just go and visit the website they say they've taken down, and it might still be up and running uh, for you. So um, there's that question. And then the other issue is, um, you know, if you wanted to prosecute, would you have enough evidence to actually prove that it was this particular group that has done it? Um, because as you said, hackers have the opportunity to evade and then mask where they're coming from and what they've done and even pin it on someone else. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue on this area of sort of uh, the theoretical. So with international terrorism, there isn't mm -hmm. an accepted definition of terrorism at, even amongst the UN membership. And part of that is the old adage of one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter, right? So the international community, individual states, uh, they, they, don't, they don't come to an agreement on, on what terrorism actually is. Cyber, I think, uh, especially with new tools coming on, these advancing machine language uh, learning programs, uh, you know, AI as we call it so far, it's, a, it's still kind of the wild, wild west. I, I mean, I think there are there, there's probably a, a hesitation on the part of most governments, especially the ones with the most advanced capabilities, to really want to negotiate and enter into any kind of a an international control regime on cyber operations, uh, because we still know so little about this. Are, are, are you? I mean, you you study this issue, cybersecurity, cybercrime. You understand the law in the cyber arena. Uh, what do you see are the big impediments to nations wanting to move forward with some sort of a, an international treaty on cyber? Well, first of all, we um, we have seen some efforts from the UN actually to create a cybercrime treaty. Yeah, we do have a convention on cybercrime from 2001 um, that has been ratified by certain countries, but uh, obviously after so many years, it has now become a little bit obsolete. <laughs> um, so we're trying to... Uh, to create a new kind of effort to identify what the cyber crimes uh, that we need to deal with are and how we should be dealing with these. Uh, but we do have a lot of regimes and a lot of governments and nations that have very different perceptions uh, on, on what should be criminalized, how it should be criminalized, and so on. So I think this is the main impediment, finding that kind of common ground, that consensus uh, between, for example, countries like China, Russia, the US, the UK, France, uh, you know, uh, Brazil, Australia, um, African countries, for example, and, and so on. Um, it's not an easy thing. Uh, we have seen that even uh, creating legislation within the UK, for example, that I am based on, can be quite problematic with a new online safety bill um, and, and how contested 
these some of the issues in this bill have become. Imagine trying to do this with so many countries actually right. having an interest um, in shaping the law. It's it's a it's a it's a fascinating topic. So for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host John Olson. Our guest today is Dr. Vasilios Karajanopoulos, and we're discussing cyber operations, hacktivism, and the role of cyber in the war in Ukraine, amongst other topics. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which is about a month away now, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. So, Vaz, we're we're down to about 14 minutes left in the show. goes by just like that. Uh, I want to pull back out and talk about a a few different topics with you because you're the expert. Uh, Maybe we could keep it tight, uh, two to three minutes on each of these topics to to sort of explain it to to our listeners. Uh, our mutual friend Sean Costigan is involved in, in NATO's cyber policy development. The U.S. Mm-hmm. also has now a, a cyber czar position, someone who's supposed to sort of coordinate across the U.S. government for cyber policy and, and whatnot. Are, are the governments in the democratic nations of the world, uh, especially the U.S. and our NATO allies in particular, are, are they doing enough in the cyber arena to defend against attacks, whether by nation states or non-state actors, or, or are, are we doing enough to kind of crack down on the cyber criminal world? It seems like every couple of days we hear in the news about some new hack that took place, uh, some company that was uh, penetrated, uh, you know, data was exfiltrated, you know, money secured, all, a lot of these, uh, these criminal activities that are taking place. But there's lots of penetration going on across the web. Are the liberal democratic governments of the world doing enough to combat it? That's uh, a, a difficult que- question to answer because I think, yes, we are doing a lot to deal with the various different issues, but um, there are so many issues um, and things are moving so quickly. We are seeing so many issues coming up with the uh, new kind of development of the large language models and generative design and AI um, and so on that uh, by the time we've dealt with um, the, the cyber issues that we've got today, we've got new issues that we should be dealing with. And I know, for example, for a fact that the UK government is very keen to explore what the challenges might be um, in this AI, you know, um, landscape, for example, I'm pretty sure the US is doing the same and and all the countries really, uh, to be honest. But um, we we started very late, I think, with with cyber because everyone was being very liberal about uh, letting people use the internet and and doing uh, you know promoting commerce and promoting that new technology um, and now we're struggling to catch up um, and I think uh, there's a lot of investment in various different schemes dealing with, with various different types of cyber crime and cyber security issues uh, but there is a lot of uh, interest in engaging in cybercrime because it's very profitable as well. So um, we could be doing more, definitely. And we are trying to do more from, from our end as well through the clinic and, you know, our research with the center. And I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, other colleagues are doing the same. But uh, it's not easy. It's it's my belief, I think, uh, based on what I've seen, that the trend lines are that the transnational organized crime groups, the really big uh, transnational cr- organized crime groups, uh, they used to make a vast majority of their money on uh, on on the drug trade, the international drug trade, but they're they're using those finances to shift into the cyber arena to make an unbelievable amount of money uh, through cyber crime, 
which is very hard to detect. It's very hard to have an attribution, uh, and it's very hard to prosecute. Uh, let me ask you one other question here, uh, which I find absolutely fascinating, and it's about the, the changed landscape uh, of who must be involved in international conflict today. Uh, companies, companies are being drawn into conflicts like the war in Ukraine, whether they want to be or not. Uh, Microsoft, as an example, you mentioned Microsoft earlier, finds itself really on the front lines uh, of both cyber warfare uh, and combating cyber crime on a constant basis because they do security monitoring uh, for their own company and also for their clients around the world. They're constantly coming up with uh, patches, security patches for software, etc. Can you talk a bit about how corporations in the technology sector are kind of de facto at this point uh, directly involved in certain aspects of global confrontation. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, a great point that we, we did mention that uh, Microsoft and Amazon and other companies have been quite involved in supporting Ukraine, for example, and providing defenses and providing reports in terms of uh, upcoming threats um, and all that. So um, we definitely see that um, cybersecurity is gradually becoming something that big organizations get involved in much more actively um, and especially if you are offering cloud services or you know operating systems or uh, applications for example that are being used by a vast amount of, of users then you're bound to to have an interest in not just maintaining your cybersecurity, but even creating products that other people can use and other companies can use and even nations can use to protect themselves um so in the same way that cybercrime has become very profitable, cybersecurity is gradually becoming uh, uh, not just a profitable, but a necessary um, element in our everyday lives. And we're bound to see organizations becoming more and more involved um, in these areas. Uh, it is my understanding that when when the World Wide Web was sort of constructed, it, it was designed, as you mentioned earlier, to be... Uh, a completely open network that anybody can access under any circumstances kind of a thing. It wasn't really the focus of creating the World Wide Web wasn't on security. There was very little thought given to the security of how the web should work. And I know there's been some discussions on, on the part of computer scientists about designing a completely new World Wide Web with the focus being security uh, as being the number one piece to that. So it's still completely usable by everybody, but there are security protocols that would be built into the system, the new system from the get-go. Are you hearing more discussion about things like that in your world? Um, I think there's uh, a lot of initiatives in relation to, for example, creating more decentralized, more privacy-enhancing um, kind of application, what we call the Web 3.0 um, in a way. Um, I have to say uh, the the big corporations that are running uh, things online now, like you know Meta or uh, Google or Amazon or Microsoft, uh, they are and their products are very very established at the moment. So it is very hard to actually create something um, that will appeal to the general public so widely that they will migrate from you know all these big platforms that we all use today um to a new kind of system it will, it will be very revolutionary um, and it will have to be very revolutionary and at the same time we are seeing that with ai um, we have a lot of new applications that are being embedded 
um, into these uh, technologies that we are already using. Yeah, I, so that I, makes them even more appealing. Yeah, and I do have a, on my list of questions of things I wanted to ask you about, about this artificial intelligence. I mean, ChatGPT was launched less than mm -hmm. a year ago, uh, and it almost instantaneously started to revolutionize uh, what the large language models could do when they're asked to create something. And in this world of cyber, uh, functions like ChatGPT have been asked to create new uh, you know, cyber hacking tools, uh, and they almost instantly are able to write new code that people can then exactly, put to yeah. word. I mean, where do you see this going with this world of artificial intelligence? And do we need to do more to regulate uh, the world of AI before uh, it just outpaces anything that the human mind can, can uh, kind of keep track of and control? It is scary and fascinating at the same time, right, I would exactly. say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I start with scary uh, first, but, uh, you know, it is also fascinating, especially if you're in this field and you're seeing um, how things unfold and what might be uh, happening in, in a few years' time, uh, both in terms of how this would revolutionize our everyday lives, but how it can revolutionize all the criminal and security threats that uh, we are already facing today. Um, I, I really think we do need, um, you mentioned introducing security in the design, um, and I think we're doing the same mistake now. We're not introducing security in the design um, of all these kind of new tools that we are implementing, not adequate security. Um, there is an element of security as well, but uh, we are rushing to bring products to the market, and then sometimes security becomes an afterthought. Um, and I think we need more to be more careful uh, because there's a lot of potential and it will happen much faster. The changes that this will bring about will happen much faster than what the Internet did yeah. um, in the last 30 years. So we just have a few more a few minutes left today before we close out the show. I know you're connected to the Cybersecurity Summit, our sponsor for the for the show. Uh, I sure. should mention the summit will be held from October 24th to the 26th at the Doubletree by Hilton Hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota. Uh, still, my understanding, you're not able to attend in person this year. Is that correct? Unfortunately, no. Yeah, I have some other commitments that have prevented me from being able to attend. Are you going really to try... sorry about that? But... Well, I understand. Uh, are, are you going to try and participate to, to a certain extent remotely at, at all? Are there any specific topics that are happening at this year's Cybersecurity Summit that, uh, or speakers that are coming in that, that are really fascinating to you personally? I will try, but I'm not going to be in the country um, and I'll be abroad for work. So I'm not really sure what I will be able to to do with this. Well, I'll have to talk to Sean Costigan about that because uh, yeah, we need to yeah, get somebody definitely. with your expertise and background <laughs> to participate in future cybersecurity summits. I always try to give my guests uh, the last word here on National Security This Week. Uh, what, what final thoughts would you like to leave with our, with our listeners regarding cyber operations, uh, hacktivism, Russian invasion of Ukraine, or anything else linked to cyber happening around the world today. Uh, the floor is yours, sir. Yeah, thank you, John. Um, what I would like to say is that there is a lot of um, misinformation and uh, fear-mongering and panic around all these issues that we discussed today. And I think it's important uh, for, for everyone to try to become more aware um, of, of these issues. Um, and also to double check what they are reading, what they are sharing online um, and what they are believing, because I think it's important to uh, get that kind of more holistic view of what is happening 
um, and and take steps to improve our personal security. And through our personal security, I think we can improve overall security because we're all interconnected. Um, and as we say, we're all as secure as the weakest link. So uh, if we can eliminate or improve the security of the weakest links, then we'll make steps forward. So Dr. Vasilios Karajanopoulos from the University of Portsmouth, thank you for joining us today on National Security This Week. Are there any publications you'd like to point out to our listeners or websites, uh, anything that you think is would be really great to help people to un- better understand some of these issues? Yeah, definitely. I have written some relevant articles for the Conversation magazine uh, in relation to the one Ukraine, but also hacktivism and uh, one on the IT army might be coming up soon. So um, keep an eye out for that. I've also written a book on uh, hacktivism more generally, if you're interested in the more historic elements uh, before 2017. Uh, my my book is called uh, Living with Hacktivism. And I'm, I'm currently writing the, the next book on hacktivism as well, which will integrate all these Ukraine-related topics that we discussed today. So um, this will probably come out sometime in the next year. Okay. So uh, when if people go to our uh, KYMN radio website or the podcast services and they can see the correct spelling of your name, they can put that in their <laughs> search bar and they can yeah. quickly find you. <laughs> uh, what courses are you teaching this year? Uh, I'm teaching uh, various different lectures on various different courses. I'm coordinating a, a module on cyber law governance and, and human rights. Um, and I'm also teaching in digital investigation, cybersecurity. Um, if you all uh, are interested, there's also um, a TV series I've, I've taken part in. Uh, where I discuss digital evidence and how law enforcement is using digital evidence to catch uh, murderers. Mm. Um, so um, I don't know if I'm allowed to say where this is found, John. Um, sure, go but, ahead. Uh, yes, absolutely. You know, um, yeah, go ahead. so it's on it's on Amazon Prime in the US, um, and it's called uh, Killers Caught on Camera. Okay, Doctor Vasilios Karajanopoulos. Thank you so much for spending time with us this morning here on National Security This Week. Thank you for inviting me, John. And, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. Look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.